You are listening to episode 46 of the Interlude Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Abby Bales. Abby is a lifelong athlete, a runner, a marathoner, a run coach. She has a doctorate in physical therapy and is the owner of Reform Physical Therapy, a private concierge service designed to help women remain active before, during, and after pregnancy. Abby and I met while I was still living in New York City, and we met each other through running. And I wanted to have her on the show because Abby recently shared her experience with making the decision to have a bilateral mastectomy to reduce her risk of breast cancer. The concept of previvorship and being a previvor meaning that your increased risk of breast cancer comes with so many difficult choices and decisions. And I wanted to share her story and to highlight some of the challenges that this population of women very often faces. And it's not something that we talk about too much. This conversation is open. It is raw. It is honest. It's incredible. And I know that you will learn so much from it just as I did. So here we go. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. Today, I am here with Dr. Abby Bales, and she's going to start by telling us a little bit about her story and who she is. So welcome, Abby. Thanks for having me on. This is really exciting. Um, My name is Abby Bales. I am the owner and founder of Reform Physical Therapy in New York City. I have a practice that is based in and around public health for females who are pregnant, postpartum, prepartum, anywhere in the uh, childbearing years. Um, I have two kids. I have been married for almost 11 years, which seems like a crazy (laughs) lifetime that we have lived. Um, And yeah, and I love, I love all types of sports and running. And uh, we met, you and I met through running and um, I've lived in New York City longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. So I consider myself a New Yorker now and, and yeah, I love what I do working in the physical therapy world. Yeah, so you and I met, actually I had hired you to do some run coaching for me for one of my marathons, and then I kept being like, um, I can't run this right now. And this was like the time, like literally the week I had met my husband. I was like, I gotta go on a date with him. Like, I can't do any of your runs. And like halfway through I was like, yeah, I, it's just not, I'm just gonna run this marathon. Um, but then we got engaged like three months later, so I feel like it's probably worth it. <laughs> Was it Philly that you were training? It was for? Philly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was Philly. I so I mean, I still like PR and had a great time, but I definitely was like, nope, can't do any of these runs because I'm busy, you know, gallivanting through the city. <laughs> Which, by the way, it happens probably with almost every runner I've ever trained. Is like something comes up because people people who are looking for a, a run coach like me are looking for that flexibility for mm-hmm. that person who's going to be able to kind of you know maneuver their their week about because I am not the type of person who's like oh no you have to get every single run and if you want to run successfully and you know just life happens and that is that's my practice that's my running that's you know you got to be flexible and I I think probably I attract that type of runner (laughs) to my coaching as well but it's true I mean I think that you know especially this year with COVID I think we've all learned right that and I talk to my patients about this all the time, you know, life happens, right? How do you pivot? How do you say, okay, well, this is what I was doing and now I need to be doing this. So how do I get from point A to point B? I mean, your kids are a little bit older, so you probably dealt with this more with school and, and going virtual and where you were living and all of that. Yeah, I think pivoting is such a good way to to describe it because it's not necessarily that you're off track. It's that you have to find a different way to get to where you want to get. And I think 
physical therapy and, and kind of my adult life has taught me that it's that there are going to be hurdles that are going to get in your way and it, you don't necessarily have to plow through the hurdle. You can turn around and go in a different way. You can go around it. You can go under it. You can go over it. And, you know, I was pregnant in physical therapy school with my son and it gave me an amazing perspective that, yeah, I'm learning all these things in physical therapy school, but is it the most important thing that I get an A in my radiology class? Not so much because the radiologists are there to, you know, go over the scan. (laughs) I'm not a radiologist. So you know, getting, getting that B wasn't going to make me feel any, as if I was any less of a physical therapist. And then in pelvic health and in pregnancy and postpartum, we are constantly pivoting from, you know, treating a, a patient who was not pregnant is now going through IVF, who is pregnant now, who maybe lost their pregnancy is pregnant again. And, you know, all of these things are going to come up throughout the course of a, uh, a rehab process. And we're, we're constantly working with it. I, I don't usually walk into my, my sessions with my patients or, or in the virtual sessions with an idea of what I'm going to do that day, because I don't have any idea how they're feeling that day. Mm-hmm. And so that really taught me to be flexible and meet people where they are that day. And I try to, I try, that's really easy for me to do in my practice. It's less easy for me to do at home. So I try to meet my kids with where they are that day and my husband where he is that day. And I think with COVID, with pivoting, with people who are training for races, people who are seeing in, in-person physical therapists, it's really important to have somebody who is, you know, guiding you through that pivot. And I, th- I think if you're scared of it and if it f- makes you feel like you want to fall apart, it's important to find somebody who you can work with, who maybe it's a therapist, maybe it's a, a physical therapist, maybe it's a run coach, maybe it's a strength coach who can help you through that pivot because you're not meant to do it alone. You know, we're not meant to do any of this alone and shoulder all of these burdens alone. And so I think if COVID has taught us anything is that creating a community on which we can rely for that support during these difficult times is, is so key to our success as parents, as doctors, as people, mm-hmm. as, you know, as women, as people. So I think that's been, been huge for me throughout this whole journey of adult life. No, it's true. One of my, one of my all time favorite quotes is um, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's like a graphic, but with a quote, and it's a woman carrying just like, I don't know, like all this weight on her back. And it says like, just because she carries it well, doesn't mean, you know, or I forget, doesn't mean she's not struggling or something like that. But yes, the point is that we, you know, especially in social media, and one of the pitfalls, I think that a lot of us fall into is, you know, you, you want to portray this kind of great, you know, life. Um, and I think a lot of people then start to feel like they need to be, um, upkeeping these, unwritten, you know, on standards that are really unattainable for a lot of people. Yeah. I think some of my biggest engagements in my personal and business accounts are always when those types of memes resonate with, or those, those comics resonate with my patients, my family members, other women in my life. And, I really bristle when people call me a superwoman or wonder woman or anything like that, because it somehow makes it out as though I am special or I am stronger than someone else just because I am shouldering and sharing what I'm shouldering Mm -hmm. and that I'm doing it. And I still have a smile on my face or I have gratitude in my heart or something. It doesn't mean that I don't have hard days and it doesn't mean that I don't wish I didn't have to. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't make me special and it doesn't make me um, any stronger than, than the, the person, the woman, the patient next to me. It just means that I'm sharing that I'm doing it so that other people can, can see that they're not alone, but I'm, I'm not Wonder Woman or Superwoman or, you know, anybody who has a, a superhuman ability to manage what other things are being thrown at me. It just means that I'm, I continue to walk through it mm-hmm. and work through it. I love that. I mean, I, I think that's so true. Everyone has something right. And everyone, and I, I, I see this a lot with patients when we're talking about really hard choices and things like chemotherapy or decisions about surgeries. And 
you know, anything. And everyone comes to the table with their own perspective, with their own burdens, with their own struggles. And I think, you know, understanding where people are coming from, but everyone's working through something at every point. Um, my perspective, you know, has certainly been changed as being an oncologist because I see, you know, life changes you're on a whim. You could be fine and then you get diagnosed the next day. So I think it's just given me a different perspective on gratitude and on, you know, being lucky to wake up every morning and feel good and being able to move my body. So, you know, I think it's, the COVID has taught a lot of people very different things this year, but I think we all just need to kind of take, you know, give everyone some space and some breathing room and just kind of relate, relate with each other, you know, lend a hand. Yeah, it's, it's, I bet you, you have this happen in your office and I have it happen probably with every one of my patients at least once is that um, I offer them a safe space to fall apart. Yeah. And not often, you know, my patients are primarily females and they are oftentimes moms. And my office is the place where they have hands touching them that are meant to help and heal them and that aren't asking anything from them. And so I'm asking, I'm asking them their story because that helps me to help, you know, help them in their rehab process. And I offer them a space to tell a story about sometimes a traumatic birth, sometimes a traumatic loss, sometimes that it's a story about their family. It's a story about abuse or something like that. And offering them that space to fall apart is not something that we as mothers, caretakers, physicians often seek out for ourselves. And so I think it's very important, you know, as practitioners that we offer our patients that space to really let go and, and get big and get emotional and let it all hang out in a really ugly way. If that's what needs to happen. Um, And as friends, you know, as friends, I've, I've had a lot of friends recently with what you know, I've been managing over the, the summer um, who have checked in and let me, you know, just air all of the yucky stuff out and all my, the feelings about, you know, what I've been dealing with. And so, you know, I think it's really important that we, we do create that for each other because very few of us are doing it for ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, um, and maybe maybe we're doing it in therapy. Maybe we're doing it uh, with you know a religious advisor, but probably not because sometimes what I you know what I feel and what my patients tell me that they feel is that if I fall apart, I'm afraid I won't be able to stop it, or I won't be able to be strong enough afterwards to to take care of my family. And so I think I think it's so important for us to to remember how it feels, how good it feels to open up and and let it out with another person and to, to be that person for the, you know, your friend or your, your family member or a complete stranger sometimes when it's, you know, I'm seeing patients for the first time, I've never met them and it's over zoom that we're doing this. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, still the one person who I say, I can't tell anybody any of your secrets, (laughs) not a single one of them, let it all out. Well, I think it's true, right? Because women have this I have to do it all. I have to be strong. No matter what I'm going through, I got to be strong for my husband, my partner, my children, my family. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people cry in my office and they always apologize. And I say, why are you apologizing? You know, this is, first of all, I'm humbled that you feel comfortable to do this with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am grateful for that privilege every day. But you know, if this, this is your safe space, right? Like you said, there's no one else needs anything of you. And actually, you know, what we've seen in COVID times, we only allow visitors for the first visit. So for all the other visits, we can have your significant other whoever you want on the phone or on FaceTime, but not in person. And so I think actually a lot of women have almost said they're kind of, I don't say grateful for that opportunity, but allows them to have this completely personal conversation without any influences and no matter how wonderful their partner is it's still sometimes you know cancer and and chemotherapy puts so much strain on a relationship on a marriage and it's nice to have that time alone um, where you really can kind of talk about what you're struggling with yeah and ask 
sometimes questions that you might be yeah you know ashamed or embarrassed to ask and it's sometimes easier it's also sometimes easier to get you know bad news or any news um on your own to process too Mm -hmm. you know because you're not so inclined to immediately go to how is this going to affect my partner um, or the person who's sitting next to me or start to comfort them because you know what if that person is the person who breaks down first and now it's all about them and comforting them so i think i think it's yeah i think it's it's great as practitioners that we that we are able to offer people that space and i too am humbled and honored that people you know are feel that comfortable and that safe to do that with me and um yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing that you do. I can't, I mean, uh, people probably cry in your office even more than they do in mine. And, and I get it probably, you know, daily. So I can't imagine how you do it and, and still, um, and still kind of bring yourself out of that every day. No, it's hard. I think, you know, we all have hard days, right? You have some days where you get, oncology is funny in a way. You go from telling one person that they're in remission and, you know, we don't use that word anymore, but we say you have no clinical evidence of cancer. Um, you know, and then you go to talking about hospice with the next person and then you just jump to hot flashes and, you know, it's all these little microcosms of experiences throughout the day. But honestly, I mean, the conversations you get to have with people and the fact that you get to enter their lives and I'm sure you, I mean, you are entering people's lives in their most, one of their most vulnerable times. And, it's just, it's heavy. It's heavy, but it's, it's rewarding. Tell me, I want to hear about your story, but I also want to hear about your, um, your physical therapy practice and it's very boutique and it's very personal. So tell us a little bit about that personal touch and how it works and virtual in-person what you're doing. Yeah. You know, it's really funny people. I was just explaining this to a patient who, um, who had reached out and I've been doing virtual stuff with patients all over the country for a really long time um, because I have all of these connections through running where people move. And, you know, the, you know, the genesis of New York city is that people come and people go mm-hmm. and very few people stay. So having met people in New York or people who visited New York, I might see them there and then they move somewhere else. Um, so I've been doing virtual stuff for a long time and pelvic health ne- necessitates that I am able to do what I can do without doing an, a hands-on exam because in the pelvic health space, I can do an internal exam and I've been trained to do it and I am licensed to do it. Um, but you know, when we work with minors, pregnant women, people who don't want you to do an internal exam, I still need to be able to assess them visually without putting my hands on them. And that is something that I, I've always prided myself in being able to do and to teach them to do internal work on themselves um, and to do internal exercises by feeling and knowing the tricks of the neuromuscular system in order to get them to do things without me having to touch them because it doesn't always feel safe for them to be touched. And, and, and with minors, we just don't, we don't do internal mm-hmm. exams on minors. Um, and, and I consider a, a minor to be, you know, well into their early twenties and especially if they are not sexually active or if there's a pain element involved in the treatment, um, we definitely, we would don't go further into an exam that is comfortable for a patient. So my part of the physical therapy practice being pelvic health, that is, it is very unique to the physical therapy world in that my hands are not my most important thing. It's my ability to visualize what the patient is experiencing and to downtrain or uptrain the neuromuscular system to function better for the patient. So my practice is built around treating pregnant and postpartum patients, but I do get a fair amount of young patients with pelvic pain, older patients with pelvic pain, um, anything in the world of pelvic health, sports rehab um, is something that I do with an orthopedic mind since I spent also um, years in orthopedic physical therapy. So my practice is very, very specific in that I see my patients infrequently, but I make them as independent as possible. So I do not ascribe to the theory that 
patients have to be in a physical therapy practice two to three times a week for six to eight weeks in order to maximize the uh, insurance benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something I've ever ascribed to. Um, I want patients to be independent, feel independent, and get back to what they wanted to do beforehand. When I get to discharge a patient, it is so exciting for me. It's my goal in life to have my roster clear of patients as soon as possible. So that is probably a terrible business practice, (laughs) but it also lends itself more to a virtual practice Um, and to a practice that with patients who have young children, you know, nobody's got time to come to physical therapy when you have an infant at home who's got to go to the doctor every other week to get a weight check. You know, it's not practical. And so if if working in public health has taught me anything, it's to maximize the amount of time that I have with my patients when I see them, to work with them and meet them where they are and not where I need them to be, um, and to get them functioning and doing their exercises in a way that they will actually do them. It doesn't do me any good to give them an hour-long exercise routine. And you know, you and I know this, we've got kids at home. When you got a baby who will only nap for 45 minutes and you have to shower and eat and get a load of laundry and, you know, and clean up everything else, you can't give them 45 minutes of exercise and say, oh, well, you have 45 minutes. Like they've got 10 minutes and it needs to be an effective 10 minutes. So, you know, my practice is built around that. And I'm really proud that I have been able to be effective and, um, you know, a well-respected practitioner and given that, um, that I think my patients come in with some more barriers than others. So I really love what I do. And I love working with moms and moms to be and moms who have had kids for, you know, six, 10, 15 years. Um, it's still great to see them achieve their, their goals and to get them back to doing what they love to do with confidence. Well, and I think it works because you are empowering women to really make a change and but to do it again and you're meeting them where they are so in a way that works for them you know and i see this a lot we know in breast cancer one of the greatest things you can do for your health in terms of risk reduction so reducing your risk of cancer if you've never had it or reducing your risk of cancer recurrence if you've been diagnosed is you know exercising on a regular basis um eating a healthy lifestyle and that a healthy diet and that you know has a lot of nuances with that but minimizing alcohol use and there's all these things and I think sometimes we have people that come in and someone said to them well you need to lose 50 pounds and they they've never set foot you know on a treadmill I mean so I think kind of I'm big on setting very small goals you know and as simple as all right I want you to walk you know let's walk for five minutes three times a week or maybe you cut out that diet soda at lunchtime just these little changes that but people feel, you know, you empower people to, to make those decisions and those changes for themselves. And it's so, so important to recognize and celebrate any progress, yeah, you know, and, and, and that's one of those things that, you know, you might not be at your goal weight. You might not have achieved the goal distance. You might not have achieved the goal speed, the goal number of times a week, but you, you found something that you like to do and you did it twice. Mm-hmm. And that is awesome. And to be able to celebrate those milestones for yourself and to not beat yourself up for, you know, not reaching your finish line yet is, is so important. And, you know, the best form of exercise is the one that you're going to yeah. do consistently. It's not the one that I need you to do. It's not the one that I love to do. You know, I love when people are like, well, everybody should be able to run. Our bodies were made to run. And I'm like, yeah, but so many people just don't like to run. That's okay. They just don't like it. And that's totally fine. And, you know, but they really like to bicycle around the neighborhood. Awesome. So you, you meet them where they are and you figure out a way to incorporate the thing that they already like to do or the thing that they used to like to do into their daily activity. And then you find people are more successful in order for them to be successful, that you have to do it in a way that is identifying something that's achievable, not to put everybody into a box. And, you know, the, my friends who are registered dietitians, you know, who ascribe to like the healthy at every size is that we'll agree in the same thing with the diet. It's like, you know, we have all these, this great research around what diets are best for 
um, reducing risk of cancer, right? It's a Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's fish, it's not red meat and those types of things. But if we can celebrate that somebody has cut one meal of red meat out a week, we can say, that's great. You've reduced your risk. It's great. Like, let's, what, what else, you know, like what's, what's the next thing, you know, and, and to be able to celebrate that and then keep going, you know, because as you and I know, as marathon runners, as people who love to run, it's that one workout is great, but that one workout, a speed workout is not going to get you to your, to, to your end goal. Um, but we can celebrate it and say, that was an awesome run. I felt really good. We'll see what we can do tomorrow. Yeah. It's the journey. You know, it's, it's the journey. So speaking, speaking of journeys, tell me, you know, I had, you had posted on Facebook, Instagram a couple of weeks, months ago, I lost track of all time um, <laughs> that you were having surgery done. So I'll let you tell the story, um, but tell us kind of what's happened and been happening in the last few months. Well, the last few months is, is like a really fast forward version of things that have been happening since I was 17. So the last few months, um, we'll, we'll backtrack about a year. Mm -hmm. I had, I have a strong family history of breast cancer. Um, my mom was diagnosed at 46 and 56 with stage two breast cancer, and it was the same cancer both times. So wasn't knocked out in the first round of, with chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. Um, it returned 10 years later. So a slow growing cancer, but a persistent one. Um, and so since I was 17 years old, I've been sitting with this and, you know, as, as a 17 year old is 1997. And so times were very different back then as to, you know, the treatments that were available, the, even, even the, um, you know, assistive treatments for the chemotherapy side effects that were available, the types of reconstructive surgery that were available have changed. And over the years, when I was in my early 20s, I remember seeing an OBGYN here in New York City, and she saw my family history and my, my great grandmother died of breast cancer. My mom had breast cancer. My mom's cousin had breast cancer and everyone's negative for the gene. And she was like, oh, well, you, I was like 20. I think I was 24, 25. And she was like, well, you need to have kids very soon. And then you need to get on tamoxifen and we need to have a, a mastectomy. And I was like, oh my, what? <laughs> I was like, oh no. And I never <laughs> went back to her office again. <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> Ever. A right, there's a right way to talk about these things. Yeah. She knows she was, she did not yeah. know that right way. Um, but before I, I started having children, I did have my first, uh, breast MRI, um, just to get a baseline. And that was sometime around, I think when I was 32 or 33. And then I had my son and, and that one was clear and I had my son. And, um, but prior to that, uh, when I was 31, my sister was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and she was, Oh, sorry. I was, yeah, I was 31. She was 35. Wow. Um, and so I had had mine, my breast checked. I had my son, you know, I went through some other health issues and then I had my daughter went through some more health issues that unrelated to the breast cancer. Cause I ulcerative colitis. So I had a whole gaggle of surgeries uh, in my intestines and that were very important for me to have. And then a year ago, this August, I had uh, my first follow-up MRI breast MRI. And they found something concerning in my left breast. And so they said, okay, well, we're going to have you come back in six months and uh, we're going to do a follow-up. Well, six months after that was March. <laughs> so I absolutely did not go back um, until my surgeon's office did call me and said, hey, we're seeing routine patient follow-ups now. And I said, well, how safe is it? I'm really concerned about it. I have an autoimmune disease. I'm, I have two kids at home. I can't get sick. And, you know, we talked about the, the cost benefit analysis and really how quiet the hospitals were because they were trying to get patients to come mm -hmm. back um, and how cautious everyone was and, and how, how safe the people who were working there felt. And so I ended up going back and they said, well, we still see that thing in your left breast but it seems not concerning. 
However, in your right breast, we see, you know, this, this circular, um, tiny, tiny circular node. And, and then they had me come back in for a biopsy. And then they diagnosed it as LCIS, lobular carcinoma in situ. Mm-hmm. And you are going to have a better understanding of this than I am. But some people say it's stage zero breast cancer. Some people say it's a neoplasm. It's contained. It's, it's non-cancerous. But it increased my chances of getting breast cancer in either breast is my yeah. understanding. Oh. So it increases my risk profile. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So the way I explain it to my patients is that cancer can either start in the lobules, which is where milk is made, or in the ducts where it travels, the milk travels to the, you know, from the lobule down the duct to the nipple. So when it's, these are abnormal cells, and when it's, the abnormal cells are in the lobule, it's called lobular, lobular carcinoma in situ. So essentially, cancer cells inside the lobule, or it could be DCIS, in cancer cells inside the duct or ductal carcinoma in situ. DCIS is referred to as stage zero. LCIS, so what that means is that it won't necessarily turn into cancer just in that spot, but it increases, like you said, your can- your risk of cancer in either breast. And it's about 2% per year. So one to 2%, depending on what you read, but let's be conservative here. So 40, 50 plus years of living, right? So right. that essentially is going to, I mean, your risk is very high. You know? And I have a hideous risk profile to begin with. So, And I think a point to make, two points that I thought of when we were talking, one, we talk about this all the time, just because there's no BRCA gene mutation or other mutations, a family history of breast cancer increases one's risk of cancer. It just means we don't know what, but there's something in your family that is a pat, you know, something is there. Um, and then the other thing I think, is very important is in you know women in their 20s and 30s who are at risk and who need MRIs or mammograms depending on age. You can't do these things when you're pregnant and breastfeeding. So it's really important to kind of be proactive and do what you did and have that MRI or that mammogram before starting to think about children. Yeah, and so they they originally said because my mom was 46 that I could wait till I was 36, but then my sister got sick mm-hmm. and and my my younger sister and I became like hotbeds all of a sudden because we had two generations and one of which, you know, as sisters, we share more genetic DNA than we do with, you know, with my mother. So, you know, we just became these little flashes on everybody's screen that we needed to be checked and rechecked every six months. And it just wasn't possible because I was pregnant, breastfeeding. I had, you know, these surgeries for my intestines that it was like nobody was concerned about my breast cancer profile during that time and then when I was done with all those surgeries and done having kids I was like okay I need to I need to take care of this other thing here and you know when I got that information um I you know I've been like I said I've been sitting with this since I was 17 and I had already made the decision that part of the reason why I I re-upped going back was I wanted to follow up, but also I wanted to have a prophylactic mastectomy before I found Mm -hmm. out any of this. And I was preparing myself for that. My husband and I were in on the same page. We knew that was something that I wanted off of my, pardon the expression, off Mm -hmm. of my chest. Um, I didn't want to spend my life wondering when I was going to get sick. I watched both of my parents and my older sister and and countless other relatives go through chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, waiting, follow-ups, PET scans, tamoxifen. And if I could relieve that future ongoing pressure from myself and that fear that I had that I was going to put my family through that, what I had gone through as a teenager and then as a 20-year-old and and watching these people I love get so sick, then I, and and all I had to do was, you know, lop off my breasts. I was like, listen, my large intestine is already gone. I already had a colostomy bag twice, like boobs, fine, (laughs) whatever. Not great because I liked 
them to begin with, but um, I, I just, that wasn't, that wasn't a deal breaker for me. I was willing to, to do that for myself, my family, my mental health and my future health. And so on August 20th, I had a bilateral total mastectomy with tissue expander placement. And I am currently going through my fills with my plastic surgeon. And sometime in December, I will have the final implants. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully that will be the end of it. Because I, as my doctor has explained to me, then, you know, after that, my follow-ups are really um, kind of minimal because they would have removed all my breast tissue and it would have taken down my risk profile to like less than 5%, which is amazing considering that I think I started out when I did the math calculator that they have, I mm-hmm. think I was at 23. And then when I had the LCIS diagnosis, I think I jumped up to above 50%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so to come down from that and to, to not feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because I'm 40 now, um, it feels really good to, to have taken, taken that bull by the horns and, and be done with that mental, that mental anguish that I've been really, I've been thinking about since I was 17. It's a long time to think about that. I think that's, I mean, it's a very hard decision to make, but an empowering one. But I made it over years, you know, like even without the diagnosis, like I, I have been making that decision for myself. I can't imagine making it in the moment. I can't imagine not having any of these, you know, I, in some ways, I'm more fortunate than those who have no pre-existing mm-hmm. family history and who are getting that diagnosis and it's out of the blue and it just hits them like a Mack truck. You know, for me, it's this like slow go, mm-hmm. you know, reading nerdy medical journals, mm-hmm. reading about, you know, diet, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of all of the environmental factors that, and I love your post because you're always like, well, this could feed cancer, but it doesn't cause mm-hmm. cancer. You know, it's an existing, I love how you break that all down. I'm always thinking about like, well, it doesn't mean if I don't have it, it's not going to cause it. You know, I like, now I don't have to think about those mental gymnastics anymore of, you know, which is not to say I don't have to be healthy, but it's more that I don't have to be constantly concerned about, mm-hmm. yeah, am I going to get it? When am I going to get it? How bad is it going to be? Because, you know, part of the treatment that I had for ulcer- ulcerative colitis were, you know, some of the drugs that they use in chemotherapy. And I got to tell you, that's pretty terrible. And I've watched, I've been in the home of my loved ones you know, as a teenager and then as an adult watching them go through chemotherapy and they were really instrumental in, in me feeling brave about surgery because I think chemotherapy is possibly the worst thing that a person could have to go through and live through. Um, as far as I, I have seen in my life. So they made me braver than Mm -hmm. I think I could have been just all alone by myself. No, it's very true. I think, you know, I see this a lot when people get diagnosed with LCIS or even DCIS, or if there's even precursor things like atypical hyperplasia, kind of, again, just these beginner changes, but we know they're increasing your risk. The women have a very hard time because there's no clear decision. So you're kind of being like, well, you can do this or this or this. Good luck. Let us know how it goes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and I sit there and I go through the risks and the benefits, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really an individual decision. You know, when you get diagnosed with invasive cancer, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's horrible, but there is a clear plan. And I think it at least takes that part out from, you don't have to, you, you know, there's going to be surgery and chemotherapy and, and radiation and et cetera, tamoxifen or whatever. But when these pre-lesions, and I think, you know, and unfortunately, they're not emphasized enough. We don't talk about these things. You know, that's why I think this whole pre-vivorship and pre-vivors is really gaining momentum, but people struggle so much more with that in terms of just making the decision about what to do. I, you know, I, I know, you know, we're talking about my diagnosis and my breast, but it, it rings true for my decision to remove my colon when I had ulcerative mm-hmm. colitis. I could have kept 
trying all the drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, I could have kept trying all the biologics, waiting for new ones to come out, getting on clinical trials. My decision to remove my colon was still at some point, it was a decision. And I have never felt so decisive as I have when I've made these decisions that I did not want to live with the wondering and the waiting and going from six month test to six month test from drug to drug, from hoping to hoping that this next thing is going to work. It's not, it doesn't feel brave. It doesn't feel like, again, I'm not wonder woman. I'm not any stronger than the person sitting next to me. It just feels decisive for me that I can say, no colon, no ulcerative colitis. Maybe I'll have to live with a colostomy bag. Okay, fine. And, you know, I'm thankful that I don't, but when I had mine, you know, I felt a lot better. I, I, I made the decision to remove my breasts and my breast tissue. And could I have lived with, out having the reconstruction, I'm so thankful that I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what it was like for my, my great-grandmother to go through that. Um, that kind of, it, it feels like a butchery type mm-hmm. of surgery that it was back then. Um, but, you know, and my breast will never look the same. I have an amazing plastic surgeon. You know, he's going to do a great job. He's, he's worked on, I found him through my patients and turns out, you know, a friend of mine also was using him at, mm-hmm. you know, around the same time. So I'm very confident that they will look as good as they can look, but they're never going to feel like my breast felt, you know, they're never going to look like them. You know, I'm, I have this numbness and I know about that and, you know, the C-sections and stuff. I am very familiar and I'm a physical therapist. So I get it. It's not going to be like the real thing, but I really feel very good and relieved that in the next 20, 30 years, 40 years, I'm not going to go from scan to scan every six months wondering when I'm going to get sick. And that has been a huge weight lifted off of my shoulders. And, and for me, you know, the choices were tamoxifen, surgery, or wait and see and wait and see seems terrible. I can't imagine living my life like that. Tamoxifen, I have seen what that thing, that drug does. I also am crazy all on my own. So I don't really feel like going through menopause on top of feeling crazy during COVID. Um, Surgery just seemed really decisive. And I don't envy, again, I just don't envy women who are getting this right now with, with no other thought process you know, having, having had no other thought process in their lives. And I think, I think that really has helped that I've been prepared and I, I kind of know how it's going to go. And I have, man, oh man, I'm only 40 and I have so many friends who have gone through this, mm-hmm. my age, maybe a few years older than me. And that seems crazy, but I've been able to lead on them and they have checked in on me. And that's, an amazing support group to have is these people I already know in a very intimate way outside of this, who I can talk to about, you know, am I being, am I being an alarmist? You know, one of my girlfriends, she texted me the night before my surgery and, and she happens to be an OBGYN and she texted me the night before my surgery and said, do you need to be talked off a ledge? And I was like, yes, how did you know? I do, I do need to be talked off a ledge am I being an alarmist about this? And, you know, she had DCIS and I was like, I was like, did you feel crazy? Did you feel like you were making some kind of, you know, really extreme decision? And she's like, yeah, but you know what? I don't live every day thinking about it. And I was like, that's what I'm looking for. That's, that's what I'm looking for. That may not be what other people's risk tolerance is, but for me, that was, that was where I landed in my treatment. And I think that's the point that there are certainly guidelines, right, that we use to help people make decisions. But at the end of the day, and I had this conversation with somebody earlier today, at the end of the day, we all know our bodies the best. And we know our minds and our hearts and what we feel. And sometimes you just have to follow that, right? There's 
there's a reason we all feel certain things and it's not, you know, crazy or voodoo or anything, but it's just listening to what your body and mind are telling you and following your heart sometimes. Yeah. And I think it was really important for me to, over the last, my husband and I have been together for 16 years and he's known about this for a really long time. He and I have had this conversation long before. It's like, like preparing yourself for, um, from marriage and pre-cana where in the Catholic church, you go through pre-cana and you talk to your future partner about really challenging conversations around money and child raising and, you know, the roles and relationships. And like, this is kind of like a, like a pre-cana for, for cancer is like, Hey, you know, I have this, my mom has it. And then my sister got it while we were together. And he, you know, he saw her going through this and, um, you know, we both agreed that that wasn't, something that if I could avoid it, I would a hundred percent have the mastectomy. And so he, he was mentally there. I was mentally there and we were there on the same page. And I think, you know, with this pre-vivor stuff, which I love that term is brand new to me, but Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, it's really hard when people make judgments about the the path you've chosen. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, without the LCIS diagnosis, I think people would have thought that I was being an extremist, that I was, you know, I know people have expressed it to me, like, doesn't that seem crazy? Why don't, why, you don't have it yet? Well, you know, I'm like, I'm not trying to wait around for it. You know, my yeah. sister found it when she was stage. Yeah, my mom, my mom was stage two, and my sister was stage four when they found it. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to wait around and go through that. Um, and I think, I think shepherding people through their decision-making process is very different than making judgments and trying to decide for them what their, their path is going to be when, you know, it's someone like me who does has have this significant family history who has a personal profile that is, that is raised and, and has a strong feeling about, um, you know, her tolerance for surgical intervention. You know, I've had, this is number nine surgery. Number 10 will be the reconstruction. Like, this is not my first go around. I'm also a physical therapist. Like I'm very well versed and um, I have the support at home to do it. So, you know, even as practitioners, when you're taught, you know, my surgeon always came back to me with, and so do you still want to do the mastectomy? Is that still something you want to do with every new scan that I had every, you know, all the biopsies and stuff like that? It was, is this still how you want to go? Here are your options. Um, that he didn't have a judgment of what I was choosing. I even heard a nurse after my surgery, she was like, you're so young. This must've been a big deal for you. And I was like, I was like, I, I have good skincare, but I'm 40. I'm not that young. And, and lady, let me tell you, I've been through some stuff. So um, yeah, try not to try not to judge me so harshly saying like, this was a big thing and you're so young. You know, that judgment is just not, it's not necessary. It's not helpful. It's not welcome. You yeah. know, people are trying to do deal with these things the best they can. And exactly. And, and that's what I did. Yeah. You know, everyone, a lot of people tell me, you know, when they get diagnosed or when they're, you know, trying to make these decisions, you know, they get a lot of unwelcome comments, unsolicited advice. And, and then some people, and I, I always tell them, I said, those, those people are going through something themselves, right? They're probably, maybe they're at risk of cancer and they're projecting because they didn't make this decision and, and, and they're scared. And, you know, and obviously you don't, you want to kind of take those people away for the time being while you make your decision, but it's so hard. I mean, there's just so much dialogue that's unnecessary and unwelcome surrounding cancer. And it's, it really is, it's just, it's awful. Yeah. And I think the history of, reconstruction is also something that, you know, even my mother's generation, I was talking to my mom because I wanted to make sure that I didn't misrepresent her dates or her Mm -hmm. ages. I was like, I called her just to go over it real quickly with her. Um, You know, she recalls what her great grandmother looked like after her surgery. And I'm sure that that informed her decision and the way that my mother looks after her partial mastectomy informed my decision. But I also had the, I have the great benefit of working in the medical field. So I've seen what new reconstruction mm-hmm. looks like. And while I, I didn't have the, 
you know, the feeling of everything on my body, you know, I could say from, from an outsider standpoint that I'd be fine with that, but I can't imagine carrying around a visual of someone who was born in the, you know, early 1900s and had breast cancer in the 1950s and what that must look like, because those people, you know, people who are my mother's age are still working in healthcare. They're still carrying that, that, that visual around with them. They're still, you know, the grandmothers of people who are being diagnosed, the mothers of people being diagnosed, and they're still informing other people's decisions based on what they saw back in the 1950s and 60s. They would take out, I mean, everything. Oh, everything. Your chest wall, you would be just concave. I mean, it was concave. figuring and awful. And, you know, because no one really cared too much about making women's bodies look, you know, nice after surgery. Um, well, they still kind of don't. Like, we still have that that misogynistic vision of, you know, what's yeah. tolerable for women to deal with post what anything. Was your, what was your recovery after, after the mastectomy? And, you know, I think certainly swayed by your experience as a physical therapist, but I don't think a lot of people really know what it's like unless they've gone through it. So tell us the real, the real part of it. Sure. No problem. Um, so you had, I had drains on both sides because I had a bilateral mastectomy. So I had drains just under my armpits um, that were draining fluid because after surgery you have fluid in these cavities and the expanders were put in. So I was in a decent amount of pain, which was strange for me because I had a do- abdominal surgery where I couldn't roll over, you know, use my lower extremities as much as I wanted, but this was my upper extremities. So, you know, I got to tell you, I think the, the strangest thing that I had difficulty with was pulling pants up. And like pulling my underwear up, mm-hmm. I couldn't, you know, my pecs, the, the expanders are placed underneath the pectoralis and they go underneath there to pull out tissue and stuff like that too. So underneath the muscle was cut and pulling up. I was like, Oh, not only can I not push or grip or grasp or like brush my teeth side to side, but I couldn't pull up my underpants. Like that was humbling beyond belief. Um, so I was in a pretty decent amount of, of pain um, on the way home from the hospital. And my my sisters and my cousin had gotten me a pillow, which I still have and I love. And it's very helpful to support my arms because I couldn't leave my arms resting against my chest or my armpits because my drains were there. And then mm-hmm. the swelling and discomfort from the, the surgery is right along my chest wall. So I always needed my pillow wherever I was. So I was on narcotic medication for maybe four or five days post-op. Um, then I, I had tapered to Tylenol around, around, around day five, um, where I was just using Tylenol for pain medication, knowing that, you know, as in my bias, my bias is, is away from narcotics um, because I think sometimes um, a little bit of pain is a good thing post-op. So I don't do too much um, because it's an upper extremity surgery. So the, the idea that I would like grab my kids or try to hold their hands or, you know, they would pull on me. Um, I needed to feel that pain to know that that wasn't okay. Um, but I, it was, it was, I was able to control it with Tylenol, but I was sleeping a lot. Getting up was really hard. Propping my myself up on my elbows to get out of bed was really hard. I slept on the couch a bunch because I lying flat didn't feel good because it stretched out the chest. So I knew these different ways of coping with movements. But my right side, my right chest wall is tighter than my left. I have a right, you know, pec that's tighter. It's my dominant side, and so that is still lagging. But I couldn't reach my arms above my head. I couldn't wash myself. I couldn't shower. My husband washed me, God bless him, getting in the shower with the handheld thing, me sitting on a stool, um, you know, really very intimately just taking care of me. Um, my, my aunt came to cook for my family. I couldn't take care of my kids. That didn't stop them from piling up on top of my legs, <laughs> as I did show in, in one of my pictures. Um, I put my pillow on my chest and then my daughter would come up and like put her head on my pillow. And she would look at me and she goes, mommy, does that feel better now? I can put my, I can put my head here. Does that feel better? And then she would curl up and as sweet as that was, man, it was, uh, it was tough sometimes with them climbing on me, but um, I slept a lot. 
I I didn't go on long walks very often. Um, I started getting used to going around the house because I was afraid to go outside and have people bump into me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't put shirts on. You know, the it's very it's very typical um, that I couldn't I couldn't reach around my back to put my shirt on, so my husband would have to dress me. He would he would you know milk my drains for me, um, and and help me get dressed and, um, you know, various people would help me pull my hair back away from my face. And it's just one of those things that when you can't use your arms, it's, it's a big deal when you have two kids. Mm-hmm. I couldn't cook for myself. I couldn't carry my, my glass of water. Um, so it's pretty humbling. And, um, but also I was very grateful to have people come and help. My girlfriend, her family came to help. And so she did all this cooking and taking care of my kids and, um, it was just, it was, it was very needed. Um, I couldn't have done it without help. There's mm-hmm. no way. And, um, only now, so I'm coming up on nine weeks post-op. Um, so in the, around week eight, which I will nerd out and say that we expect tissue to have a full healing process about six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And that eight week, I, I swear to God, I, week eight on the to the day I could reach my arms above my head so I was doing all of my active assistive range of motions um everyone wants to talk about walking up the wall it's not my favorite way to move my shoulders so to get range of motion I prefer to put my hands on a countertop and lean forward um if I'm sitting in a chair or sometimes I'm standing to get that range of motion so I was doing range of motion stuff when I got my drains taken out so my drains came out I think about eight days post-op. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I could start to move with more freedom without the drains kind of pinching at everything as I moved. And and so now I've just started being able to lift a little bit of weight to gain some of that strength back in my upper body, you know, really stand up straight and, um, you know, drive and, and cook and all that kind of stuff. So, so it was a solid two months of, of debilitation. I think that's important, right? It's not because a lot of people kind of have this misconception of the drains are coming out, you should feel back to normal, you know, and it's really not like that. How did you know? And go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, I was going to ask us, how did you talk to your kids about it? You know, what? what I didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I didn't. Yeah. Did they? They're six and three. They're, um, and and the other thing is is like this is not their first rodeo with mommy yeah, being they, in the hospital because mommy a surgery yeah yeah so um and not surgery specifically you say mommy's going to the doctor she'll be there you know the last time I went in to the hospital it was for a week I I go every time I would go in for my GI surgeries I'd be there for five days um and I would come home and you know they didn't they didn't necessarily see my colostomy bag, but they knew mommy had ouchie boo-boos on her tummy and to be gentle. And when I came home this time, I was home within 24 hours and they knew mommy had ouchie boo-boos and to be gentle. And that's the end of the story for them. They're six, they're three. Um, and they've, uh, I think they've both at this point seen me without my shirt on, but I just did not have them see my, mm-hmm. they, they would see my drains like hanging down from my shirt sometimes. And they would say, is that blood? And I would say, yeah, it's blood and it's fluid and it does it hurt. No, you know, I, any questions they had, I was happy to answer, but I wanted to, again, meet them where they were in their curiosity and not burden them with more than they needed to know. Um, and that's kind of been my, my guiding line was if they're curious, I will answer the questions honestly. Um, and if they're not, I'm, I'm not trying to sit them down and have them, you know, read above their level right now. So, you know, it was mommy's going into, mommy's going to the doctor. She's going to come home and have some ashy boo-boos and we just have to be really gentle. And to that end, our three-year-old, our six-year-old's great. And, and he just like off he goes and has, mm-hmm. you know, sees something shiny and goes running across the room. Um, but my three-year-old will look, are you better? are you better? And she would give me a kiss on my arm and she'd say, are you better now? And I'm like melting. And I'm like, yes, I'm better now. Um, but she's amazed that now I can pick her up. Mm -hmm. Um, mommy, you can pick me up now. But, um, so that's, that's the level to which my kids know. And I think that's, that's a great explanation. Like, cause parents ask me, my patients ask me all the time, well, 
you know, what do I tell my kids, right? And and depends on how old the children are. And I always tell them the toddlers, the preschoolers, the kindergartners, they, they're not going to understand, you know, you don't have to use the word cancer if you don't want to, they're not going to understand. You know, I think it gets harder when kids are old enough to Google because you don't want them Googling words like cancer without context. Right. That's yeah. And I can say as a 17 year old whose mom was diagnosed with cancer, it was very scary. And I remember that my dad told me and us all individually that she, she couldn't do it herself mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. And my dad told us, and that was before Google and the internet was really, you know, mm-hmm. something that we had access to really quickly. And that was really scary because I didn't, I, I'm one who goes st- and starts, I, I immediately go to Google scholar and I start looking for, for literature. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking on PubMed for data. I'm looking for RCTs. I'm looking for the, you know, systemic systematic reviews and stuff like that. Um, and so as a teenager, I just didn't have access to that. So I didn't have any answers and my mom couldn't talk to us about it. She was too upset and, and my dad didn't know either. And so, you know, as a, as a 17 year old, I would have wanted more information. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I gained that knowledge as I got older as to what my risk profile was, what my options were. So, so that when I did go into that, that OBGYN's office who said, you know, you need to get on tamoxifen as soon as possible. I was like, um, no, I don't like, no, I don't have to. And no, I don't have to have my children right this second either. Um, you know, so I think it's important to share the options and to share the the knowledge and and the numbers. You know, well, your risk pro- profile went from this to this. These are these. This is just math. You know, so I for me, I, I, it's helpful for me to have the information. Um, and as a seventeen year old, I I, I kind of wish I had had a chance to even talk to mm-hmm. my mom's doctor about what it meant and to get my questions answered because nobody else was there to answer them. But for my, my toddlers and my, my six-year-old, like, I don't, I don't need them to be scared about mommy. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. We can, we could talk all night, um, but it is getting late. So I want to thank you for just being so open and honest and about this conversation, because I know it's not an easy topic to talk about, but really, really important one that will help a lot of people who are either going through this themselves or know someone who's going through this. And I think if it inspires even one person to, to make a decision or to reach out to someone to help, you know, to say, I'm with you, I'm, you know, I've got my hand on your back. I'm here for you. Um, I, I think that that's, that's what I always aim for with these conversations. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to share Uh, or anything that we just didn't come get to? No, I think, you know, I think there are a lot more and more of, of people falling into my category of risk profiles that are maybe not catastrophic people who don't have BRCA, but they have a family history, you know, these um, patients who, you know, as we we have more sensitive tests and more information about family histories and lineage and things like that. I think, um, I think there are more people in in my group who are scared to get that MRI and scared to go for their first mammogram. And they're scared. They don't know that like your first stop is a breast surgeon's office and they're the ones who are ordering mm-hmm. the, those tests often that I, I was scared too. And I'm, I'm still scared to have my next surgery. You know, every time I go into the OR, I always tell everybody in the OR, I have two kids and I got to go home after this. So don't (laughs) let me die. You know, they don't love me for saying it. And when they time in, I time in as Dr. Abigail Bales, PT, DPT, the patient, do not kill me. (laughs) Um, So I, I hear, I hear all of that. And I, I know that surgery is scary and treatment is scary and the unknown is absolutely terrifying, but the more, you know, the sooner, you know, it, the more options you have, the better decision you can make for yourself and your family and 
early diagnosis is key. Early detection is, is of the utmost importance to have the best chance to survive. And I, I really hope that that women feel empowered to go to their doctor and say, I, I want this test. I need to start this baseline and, and, you know, start down that path of, of just having the knowledge about their own health history Mm -hmm. and, and creating a team who can work with them, who they love and trust. And I think if, if this conversation can inspire one person to go get that mammogram, that MRI, you know, to, take those steps towards surgery that they, they know is their best option, then I share, I share that, uh, that hope with you that, that this is, that this is worth it for them. Thank you. If people, if the listeners want to know more about you or your company, where can they find you on social media? They can find me at reform PT NYC, all one word on all social channels. Uh, I would say I'm most active on Instagram. Um, and they can always email me at info at reformptnyc.com or shoot me a DM. I'm very open with my story. You want to know who my doctors are. I'm happy to send that news along as well. Um, or just to say hi and, you know, say that you're in the same boat or, you know, going to get that mammogram, give you a thumbs up. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to my conversation with Abby. It's definitely been one of the most informative conversations I've had because survivorship and what that entails and the decisions that people make is not something that we often talk about. We spend a lot of time talking to women who have been diagnosed about what their stories are like. And obviously those stories are so, so important, but this is a whole other level of breast cancer that really we need to pay attention to and bring more dialogue and conversation to. Thank you for tuning in week after week to listen to me share information about cancer, as well as to listen to these incredible conversations. I would be honored if you would take a minute to leave a rating and or review for the podcast over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to the ears of more listeners. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. I'd love to hear what you thought about the episode or to connect in any way. Have a great weekend and I will see all of you next week.